was talking with a with a gentleman and he he was lamenting the fact that his church he said we just never have revivals anymore and i said well, what do you mean by that and he said well we never we used to have spring revival and fall revival and we never have revivals anymore and i asked him i said well, why why do you think that is and he said well probably cuz nobody came to the last ones we had you know that's the thing about meetings isn't it a lot of times we can schedule meetings and we can call them revival meetings, but the fact is, is a lot of times people don't come. Many of us in here have very distinct memories of revival meetings that would fill up churches for nights on end, maybe even weeks on end. I think the lo- longest I ever saw was probably two weeks, but but some of you probably remember being around or being near revival services that would go on for weeks and weeks and weeks, whether those revival meetings were in tents or in church buildings or rented auditoriums. I have been to dozens of revival meetings over my lifetime. I've seen emotions run high. I've seen the altars filled with people. I've seen people, you know, come down the aisle every night of revival meetings. I've seen those things. But every one of them, every one of them, within just a few days or at most a few weeks, sometimes even within a few hours, everything goes back to the way it was before. No change. Nothing different. No change in the community. Sure, some things change maybe inside the church, inside the walls of the church, but no real change. Folks, that's not revival. Whatever your memories tell you about those kinds of emotionally charged events, that's not revival. They can be really good meetings, But that's not revival. Of all the revival meetings that I have been to in my lifetime, I have never seen real revival. That breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because real revival is a movement of God. Real revival is a movement of God that you can't explain. It's a real movement of God that moves through individuals and through churches, and as a result, it changes whole communities. That's real revival. Some of the great historical revivals swept across this country and really swept across the world, swept across entire nations. I don't know if you've read in your history books about, I don't even know if they put it in the history books anymore, but about the First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening happened, it swept across Europe and it swept across the American colonies from the 1730s through the 1740s. Now there are debates about the beginning and about the end of it, but certainly during the 1730s and the 1740s, this Great Awakening was sweeping Europe and America. And during that time, millions and millions of people who had just been attending church because it was the cultural thing to do. They were in a, in a, in an age of cultural Christianity where that was just the thing that you do. You just go to church. 
but millions and millions of people during this first great awakening, their hearts were awakened. They were saved. They were seeing what church is supposed to be. They were radically saved. And it impacted their communities and it impacted, it impacted to the point that it led the colonies to form the United States of America. The second great awakening, there's more debate about the second great awakening, when it started and when it ended and all of the the spurious things that went on with both the first and the second great awakening, but especially the second great awakening. But there was a nationwide awakening that happened in the early 1800s. And that great awakening that happened in the early 1800s, it swept across the American frontier. And we can count the fact that our area, our area in the Appalachian Mountains was evangelized. We can attribute that to the second great awakening through the brush arbors and all of the things that went along with that. And millions and millions of people were radically saved in these brush arbors and these camp meetings, and new churches popped up all over the country as a result of the revival called the Second Great Awakening. Many people have attributed the American Civil War to hearts and minds being changed because they were saved and they saw the atrocities of slavery in our nation. In 1857, there was a revival called the Businessman's Revival. You might have heard about the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, but there's probably not many of you that have heard about the Businessman's Revival. The Businessman's Revival in 1857 started out as a simple lunchtime prayer meeting that a man named Jeremiah Lamphere decided, a layman decided, Let's have a prayer meeting. And he placarded all throughout his neighborhood in New York City for businessmen to come and pray. And it started with a group of about 30 minutes late. He, he, he waited and nobody came and nobody came and nobody came. And then after about 30 minutes, one came and then another came. And in that first prayer meeting, they had about a dozen people. But out of that prayer meeting, God spawned a revival that swept through New York City and it left New York City and moved to Philadelphia and throughout the East Coast and it moved from the East Coast back across the ocean to Europe, cities all over the eastern U.S. and to Europe, and millions were saved. Just in New York City alone, it's said that one million people were saved. And that was in 1857 when a million people meant something. In 1904, probably my favorite revival stories, and you've heard me tell these over and over and over again, just because the region, the area was so similar to our culture. In 1904, the country of Wales experienced an amazing revival. And that amazing revival in Wales eventually swept all throughout Europe. The impact on Wales was so amazing. You see, it wasn't just an emotional event that happened in a church or in two churches or even in an association of churches. No, it spread immediately outside the walls and people were saved throughout the community and throughout the area and throughout the region to the point that lives were changed. 
So many people were saved in Wales during the first two years of that revival that the public houses had to close. And that's what they called them, public houses. We shortened it later on to pubs. You might know them as bars. The bars had to close, not because the believers, the new believers were protesting and picketing the bars. No, they closed because they didn't have any customers. In 1905, the Welsh police force was so bored that they formed choirs. And you can look today, the Welsh police choir is still, they still tour internationally. But the whole thing was formed because they were so bored because there wasn't crime. <laughs> they, they didn't have any crime for two years. Wouldn't it be awesome if our police were so bored that they could do stuff like that? Stories are told, and I know I've told this one several times. The production, the, the uh, Wales was really a coal mining area. Um, and stories are told about the production in the coal mines plummeting during this time. See, if you look to revival to bring economic impact to a community, it can certainly have a negative impact. It doesn't always bring a positive economic impact. It brought a negative economic impact to Wales because the coal mines just about shut down. The reason that they shut down was because so many of the coal miners were getting saved that the mules, this was before the days of mechanization, the mules didn't know what to do. The reason the mules didn't know what to do was because they had been trained by the coal miners before they got saved, and the only commands that they knew were cuss words. So when the miners were getting saved and they were telling the mule which way to go, they weren't cussing at it anymore, so the mule was like, I don't know what to do. And production went down so far that they almost had to shut the mines down. Those are amazing stories, aren't they? I mean, I love, I love those. Isn't it amazing to hear about the wonderful things that God has done in the past? Do you think He can do it again? With all of the drugs and violence and poverty and brokenness and broken homes, broken lives and broken marriages, with all of those that are going on, with all of those things that are going on all around us, do you think God can do it again? you think He needs to do it again? We're in desperate need. Amen? I think that here at Parkview, I think that we've been able to catch just just the corner of the smallest of the tiniest of glimpses of what real revival is like. And I, I thank God for that. I thank God for the new life that He's brought here in this church and through this church. I think we've caught just a little... It's like getting one grain of sugar on your tongue. What does that make you want to do? If you're like me, it makes you want to eat the whole bowl. And we've gotten one little tiny grain, is that what you call it? Whatever, cube, one little tiny taste of real revival. 
Oh, but God, I want to see real revival. I long to see it. Not a series of planned meetings. Those are fine and, and all of that. That's fine. I don't want to see some crazy temporary wave of emotionalism that, that people get caught up in. And we see reports of that. Anytime that something like that happens for a few days somewhere, then it gets on Christian TV and people get all excited and think that that's real revival. That's not what I long to see. I long to see real revival. I long to see the kind of revival that we see in our passage this morning. I long to see the kind of revival that happened in Ephesus. This morning we're going to look at the first part, like I said, the first part of a very long passage. It describes this amazing revival that happened in Ephesus and it spread all throughout Asia, Asia Minor. And today we're going to look at what it takes to start real revival. Next Sunday we're going to look at the results, what comes from, comes as a result of real revival. As I said, Paul started his, has started his third missionary journey, and we've got a map in the bulletin this week. You can follow along uh, with where we are and where we've been. You remember that at the end of his second missionary journey, Paul made this quick stop-off at Ephesus. And when he made this quick stop-off at Ephesus, he brought this couple that he'd been discipling from Corinth, brought them with him, Priscilla and Aquila, and he tasked them with starting a church. There in Ephesus, they were responsible for getting this new church plant at Ephesus off the ground. They brought in Apollos as the first preacher there. Well, his doctrine was a little bit off. We talked about that last week. But they pulled him aside, got his doctrine straightened out. And after his doctrine was straightened out, they sent him back to Corinth so he could pastor and preach there, so he could serve the church there. So all of that is going on here in Ephesus. But Paul's not on the scene. Paul is over at his home church. He's over at his sending church. He was being refreshed. He was being, he was recovering at his sending church in uh, Syrian Antioch. Now that didn't last long because Paul isn't going to sit someplace for very long because God called him to go and to plant churches and to be on mission. So after spending this period of time at Syrian Antioch, he took off on this third missionary journey. When he left Syrian Antioch, as I said, you can follow along on your maps, he went back and he traced his his footsteps where he started his second missionary journey. So he went back to Iconium and to Lystrum and to all these places where he planted churches along the way and gets to a certain point and heads south into Asia Minor. He heads back to Ephesus. Ephesus was the most significant city in Asia Minor. Now, we don't need to go into a whole you know, sociological understanding of Ephesus, but you need to understand that this was, this was a major city. There was probably, a best guesstimate, there was probably about, two, about a quarter million people that lived in Ephesus at the time. Its economy was absolutely off the charts. It was a thriving economy. And its economy wasn't based on things that they produced. Its economy was based on commerce, and it was based on tourism. The reason that it was based on tourism, because all of the known world, Greeks and Romans, loved to come to Ephesus for the Temple of Artemis. 
The temple at Artemis, uh, the temple of Ar- Ar- temple of Artemis. Let's try to say that ten times, would you? <laughs> let's go with the Romans. We'll call it the temple of Diana. That sounds easier. <clears throat> no, but the temple of Artemis was was an amazing building. It was an amazing facility. It was the main focal point of the city. The architecture was absolutely stunning. It was glistening marble inside and out. It was so beautiful, it was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The largest, it was the largest Greek building of the time. It was magnificent. People would flock to the temple. They would flood that area. And they didn't just do it one day a year. They did it year-round. This worship, this tourism, worship tourism, if you want to call it that, drove the economy to the point that if anybody would have threatened that temple or that worship, it would be th- it would threaten the, abs- the fabric of that community. You know how worked up we get when somebody threatens coal. And coal is just a, a part of our economy. This was what their economy focused on. It was the central part. They were not a diversified economy. Ephesus was a thoroughly pagan place. And whether people actually worshipped Artemis or not, somehow they were economically and emotionally attached to the worship of Artemis. Everybody made money off of her. And that was the environment that Priscilla and Aquila planted this church in. That was the community. That was the environment. And that was the environment that Paul was stepping back into. And that was the environment where real revival happened. See, if you think that our town or our area or our region or our country is too far gone for real revival to happen, then you haven't really read this. If God could bring revival to Ephesus, He could bring revival to anywhere. So what does real revival look like? We've seen the scheduled meetings. We've seen the cheap inter- the cheap invitations. Don't you want to know what it really, really looks like? How can you tell when real revival is happening? First, you can tell by what a real revival starts with. Real revival starts with bold proclamation. Look at verses 8 and 9. And when I say look at it, I mean pull up your Bible and look at it. Don't just read it off the screen. <clears throat> and he entered the synagogue, he being Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Okay, we read that, and we've been, those of you who've been walking through the book of Acts with me, we're now on the third missionary journey, and this can almost sound repetitive, can it? Here comes Paul, he comes into a new city, and the first place he goes is to the synagogue, and he preaches there for a while, and then people get tired of him or throw him out, and then he goes and preaches to the Gentiles. It can almost seem repetitious. But I guess since it seems repetitious, I guess that's a pretty important point, isn't it? 
The Bible, God didn't waste words in the Bible repeating things just to have us say, well, that's repetitious, let's skip over it. The reason that God repeats it in Scripture is so that we can get the point. Because I don't know about you, I forget. (laughs) I need things to be repeated. See, up until this point, everywhere that it was possible, Paul started by preaching in the local synagogue. But as we go through the rest of the book, you'll realize this is the last time that he did that. This is the last time that he shows up in a synagogue. This is the last time that he has any kind of relationship with a synagogue at all. The synagogue at Ephesus was the last one that he had any kind of contact with that we know of. But regardless of where Paul preached, regardless of where he started, his message was the same. And he preached and he proclaimed Jesus boldly everywhere he went. He proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere he went. He showed people their sin, He showed them their need for a Savior, and He showed them their Savior. Sometimes He had great response, sometimes He didn't. Most of the time He didn't have great response. Sometimes the the results of Him preaching the Gospel, Him proclaiming the Gospel, were flat-out disappointing. But regardless of the results, He kept doing it, didn't He? He persistently kept on proclaiming the Word of God. He kept on reasoning with people from the Scripture. He kept on persuading them. Do you see the words there that He persuaded them? He didn't just share the Gospel and then leave. No, He reasoned with them. He persuaded them about God's plan and purpose for their life. Here in Ephesus, when He wore out His welcome there in the synagogue, He headed down the road and He found this this place that was available for him to preach in, it was called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus or the School of Tyrannus. Uh, the word really, uh, the, the Greek word really is very similar to our word for school. Probably what happened, we don't know who this Tyrannus was. He, um, he probably got his, his name is the same root as the word for tyrant. So maybe he was like some of my teachers growing up. I, I don't know. <laughs> Um, but that's probably how he got his nickname. He was probably a philosopher or a teacher, and he held his school, held his classes there in this facility. Typically, that's what philosophers and teachers would do. They would hold their schools. They would hold their cl- They didn't have air conditioning in those days, so they would hold their school and classes in the morning when it was cooler. And then after it started to warm up in the heat of the day, they wouldn't have classes. Matter of fact, the businesses had closed. They'd take naps in the middle of the day during the heat. There was one historian that said that um, more people in Ephesus were asleep at 1 o'clock in the afternoon than at 1 o'clock in the morning. Ephesus was a party town. They would stay out all night. They would go to the school in the morning or do their work in the morning, and then they'd sleep all afternoon. So that left this place available for Paul to come in and preach and teach. It was available during the midday. Now, was that the most, um, was that the most desirable time? No. It wasn't the, it wasn't the most ideal situation for Paul to proclaim the gospel in. But it was an opportunity and he took that opportunity anyway. Might not have been convenient, but you preach in season and out of season, don't you? You proclaim the gospel in season and out of season. Whether it was convenient or not, Paul boldly proclaimed the word. Are are you bold in your witness? 
Or do you let inconveniences get in the way? Do you take every opportunity that you might have, whether it's convenient or whether it's whether it fits in with your schedule or your world? Do you take every opportunity that you can to share the gospel with people? Or are you always looking for something more convenient? If you want to see real revival, then you need to be bold in your proclamation, whether it's convenient or not. You also need to multiply disciples. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Back up in verse 9, Luke records that Paul was reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This was a daily operation. And here in verse 10, we see that he kept doing that for two full years, daily, over and over and over and over again, faithfully. Paul and those early members of the church at Ephesus, they were so persistent in sharing the gospel that the Bible says that all of the residents of Asia heard the gospel. Now... Commentators, you know, I'm thankful for commentators because they do some good scholarly work. But you read many commentators and they, they chalk this up to hyperbole. If you read this and you thought, well, that doesn't mean all. All doesn't mean all there, does it? Well, if you say all doesn't mean all there, then where else doesn't all mean all? I had a professor one time, it was so much that we, we, his name was, was Fink, Dr. Fink. And, and it, he said it so much that we call it still to this day. Some guys that were in that class with me, we still call it first think one, one. <laughs> he said, all means all. And that's all all ever means. <laughs> so when he says that all of Asia heard the gospel, I don't believe that's hyperbole. I think that all of Asia heard the gospel. The only way that all of Asia heard the gospel, it wasn't from the mouth of Paul. Ephesus was one of the few places where Paul stayed. Later on in chapter 20, we'll see that Paul stayed in Ephesus for three years. It was the longest place that he stayed. He actually pastored that church, not just planted it. So he he stayed there. He wasn't traipsing all over Asia, Asia Minor, which is... We know that as Turkey now. He, he wasn't traipsing all over that proclaiming the gospel. So that meant that the people that he was preaching to, the people in the church at Ephesus, they were the ones to have to proclaim the gospel outside of the walls of the church. In other words, Paul was making disciples, and those disciples were making disciples. One of the things that's fascinating, you find out about this time that Paul spent in Ephesus, there were churches that were planted all throughout Asia Minor. We don't see that in the book of Acts because they weren't Paul's missionary trips that planted those churches. But the churches at Colossae, at Hierapolis, at Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, all of those churches were planted, and probably many others that we don't know about, but we know about those eight churches that were planted. 
So how did that happen? It wasn't Paul that was going around. I mean, that had been his pattern up to this point, but it wasn't his pattern from Ephesus. Ephesus was the place where Paul planted his life and missions developed out of that church. The only way that all the residents of Asia could be able to hear the Word of the Lord is if disciples themselves were making and multiplying disciples. You know, that's the only way that we'll see real revival happen in our area. It's never going to happen from a handful of preachers that get fired up and preach real good to their churches. It's never going to happen. It'll only happen when individual believers walk outside the walls of the church and faithfully, persistently, continually share the gospel with their friends, with their family, with their neighbors, with their co-workers, and even their acquaintances. I've shared this before, but can you imagine what would happen if 10 people in here, I don't know, we've probably got 80 people here this morning, close to it. If 10 people in here, each of those 10 people made a disciple of Christ. Now I know that God is the one that saves, but He's going to save when we're persistent in sharing our faith. Amen? So if 10 people, if each of those 10 people shared their faith enough that they won, each of them won one person to Christ this year and discipled those people to the point where they would share their faith enough to win one person each year. Do you know how many people that would be? You know, Paul was in Ephesus for three years. If that happened here, if ten people would do that, and those ten people would win their ten and would win their ten, every single person in Mercer County and Tazewell County would have heard the gospel within three years, just from it starting with ten people in here. I know that through the church at Ephesus, God multiplied disciples to the point that all Asia heard the Word of God and at least eight new churches were planted. And I know He can do it again. And I know He will do it again. God has said in His Word that it is His desire that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's His desire. He calls us to be faithful. Calls us to be faithful. But listen to me. I know this isn't some sort of a pragmatic formula. I wish that I could stand up here and say, you know, we do these three things and a result, if we check those three boxes, then as a result, this is going to happen. I, I know it's not some sort of a pragmatic formula because salvation is a work of the Spirit of God. Amen? God is the one who saves. So even though we're called to be bold in our proclamation and faithful in multiplying disciples, if we want to see real revival, then we have to understand that we desperately, desperately need the powerful presence of the Spirit of God. And that's where verses 11 and 12 come into play. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles. By the way, isn't that interesting? Is a miracle ordinary? A miracle is not ordinary. So Paul just emphasizes, or Luke just emphasizes it here by saying these weren't even just run of the day, run of the mill miracles. These were extraordinary miracles. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Okay. Do we expect that to happen? I mean, once again, we come across one of these strange scenes in, in the book of Acts, and it's a strange scene that has been co-opted and abused by false teachers throughout the ages. I remember se- several years ago in the mail, I haven't gotten them in, in years, maybe they're still out there, but several years ago I got a photocopied prayer cloth in the mail. Well, first off, it wasn't a cloth, it was a piece of paper that had been Xeroxed. And second, what kind of nonsense is that? You know, even more nonsensical than a paper prayer cloth was if you send this paper prayer cloth back to them with a donation of a certain amount of money, then you'd get your prayer answer. I mean, what a bunch of nonsense. And they took that idea from a twisting of passages like this. I mean, how ridiculous is that? That's more paganism than anything that you can find in Scripture. Once again, you've got to understand the descriptive nature of a unique event that happened in the formative years of the church. That's what this is. God was sometimes using unique signs and wonders to confirm, to make sure, (laughs) to show people that Paul was under God's authority. That was showing Paul's authority. What shows our authority? This is what shows our authority. We have the completed, fully sufficient Word of God. That is our authority. Not some sort of weird signs and wonders. Prayer cloths, spring water, anointing oil. These spring water commercials, man. How they get me mad every time I see them anointing oil, any of these other things that are marketed by so-called ministries are hoaxes. It's false prophet, it's false teaching. Don't have anything to do with it. Don't fall for any of that nonsense. These verses are not given to us so that we will try to seek out some sort of extraordinary miracles through scraps of cloth. That's not why they're given to us. It's not even clear. I can't say enough to make a definitive case about this one way or the other, but it's not even clear that Paul was approving of these things, these trinkets being given out. Paul wasn't taking these things to sick people. Other people were doing that on behalf of him. Now, that's not what this description is for. This description is given to remind us that the real, that real revival is ultimately a work of the Holy Spirit of God. That is the extraordinary miracle. Real revival is not natural. It's supernatural. It's not something that we can gin up through emotionalism or through good music or great preaching or any of those kinds. No, real revival is supernatural. It is an extraordinary miracle of God. 
We can't gin it up with all these things that we try to gin it up with. No, we are completely and totally dependent on God to bring us the revival that we so desperately long to see. We're dependent on Him. You know, God won't do it without us boldly proclaiming His Word. God won't do it without His people faithfully making and multiplying disciples. God won't do it without His people praying and asking Him to do it. I think Isaiah 64 is one of the most beautiful examples of that kind of prayer. In Isaiah 64... Isaiah is praying to God. Listen to verses 1 and 2. He says, Dear God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Listen to me, we don't pray for revival so that our church will get bigger. We don't pray for revival so that our offerings will grow. We don't pray for revival so that we would be well-known or famous. No, we pray for real revival so that every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we pray for revival. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that God's name would be hallowed and that his kingdom would come. That's praying for revival. So since we pray that, that's why we boldly proclaim His Word to a lost and dying world. That's why everywhere we go, we need to make and multiply disciples and bring those disciples into the church where they can be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we can teach them all things that Jesus commanded us to do. That's Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And that's why we have to pray. That's why we have to pray, not just that we feel better in our physical body. We have to pray that God would rend the heavens and come down. We have to pray that God will do extraordinary miracles of salvation in our neighborhoods and towns and region and nation. Pray for a new Great Awakening. Pray for a new businessman's revival. Pray for a new Welsh revival. Pray for a Bluefield revival. Pray for a a Tazewell County and Mercer County revival. Pray for a southwest Virginia and a southern West Virginia revival. Pray for a national revival and even an international revival. Pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next Sunday we're going to look at the results of true revival, but here's what I want you to do this morning. This morning, I only want you to do one thing. I want you to make a fresh new commitment to praying for revival. Pray for God to light the fires of a new great awakening 
that will sweep through our area. And when you pray that, pray for Him to start those fires in you. Pray, fast, cry out to God to rend the heavens and come down. Before you pray like that, you need to know something. We believe that God answers prayer, right? That kind of prayer comes with a warning label. Everything we got around comes with a warning label. That kind of prayer comes with a warning label. Before you pray like that, you need to understand that you are asking God to use you to make it happen. You're asking Him to use you to boldly proclaim Jesus in the circles that He's placed you in. You're asking Him to use you to boldly proclaim the gospel to your children, to your family, to your spouse, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, and to your acquaintances. And you're asking the Lord to use you to make and multiply disciples. That means that you're not going to rely on the pastor to be the disciple maker of this church. You're asking the Lord to use you to make and to multiply disciples. When you pray for real revival, you're asking God to use you to make disciples who will make disciples. That's what I'm asking you to pray for. Write it down. Commit to it. And who knows? Who knows but that God would rend the heavens and we would see extraordinary miracles of salvation in our midst and in our community and in our area and in our nation.